What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. I think it's safe to say a brand has reached icon status when it has over 2,500 locations around the world, over 70,000 employees, and has fans that feel like this little guy. Oh my God, I'm a Chipotle. Chipotle is my life. But what if the same brand made hundreds of people sick over a period of years across multiple locations and from different foodborne illnesses? Could they retain iconic status? the show where we dive into the strange but true stories of iconic companies. Whether they're a current bright star, in the midst of recovering from a massive case of food poisoning, or settling into the compost heap of history, they all have a past worth knowing. I'm Dana Barrett. I'm a former tech executive, an entrepreneur, and a TV and radio host. And over the course of my career, I've interviewed thousands of business leaders and reported on the bright beginnings and massive flameouts of the brands we know and love. Some of their stories are inspiring, some make my tummy ache, and some bring up more questions than they do answers. Today, we're talking about Chipotle, and I think it has a bit of all of that. With me, as always, is my co-host and producer, new guy Nick Bean, a.k.a. <laughs> the Beanster, who was born for this episode. Oh, yeah. I'm all about the beans. There's black beans, there's pinto beans, there's refried beans. Okay, Bubba. Okay, <laughs> that'll do. I feel like this could totally be an episode full of puns and like some of my groaner mom jokes, but let's just wait for it. Roll with it. <laughs> um, all right, look, Nick, let's start with this. Okay. When the Chipotle craze was in full swing, I'm going to say what, about uh, maybe more like 10 years ago almost, right? Yeah, just right? about, yeah. Were you totally into it? No, I was not a Chipotle head, but I will say I did definitely have a lot of friends who were. Were you crazy about Chipotle, Dana? 
you know, I wasn't either. I really kind of like some of the other slightly smaller chains better. I was a big fan of Moe's and always have been. And then we have a local chain here in Atlanta called Willie's mm. that I like. Um, mostly because I think the food is better. Like, not that it's better quality, but that it tastes better. Like, they have salsas that I like better without so much, like, chunks in them. Right. Or they have, you know, roasted red peppers to put on stuff. And, like, Chipotle is much more limited, so. It is, yeah. Some of the other places are a little more <clears throat> flavorful yeah, at times. I guess I also always felt like when I started going to Chipotle, people were already really into it. And so it was almost, like, overhyped. You know, like when you go to a movie and it's been overhyped and you're like, I don't get it. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because I agree. I was one of those kind of late adopters as well. And when I went in, I was like, really? This is what you guys were all up about? Okay. Yeah. And then in fairness, the rabid fan thing, like I don't generally get rabid fandom. Not going to lie. I have never been that kind of person. In fact, when people ask me my favorite anything, like what's your favorite color? What's your favorite food? I kind of panic. Uh, well, who's your favorite producer, Dana? Uh, Nick Bean. Ah, oh, that one yeah, was easy. Nick Bean. Um, <laughs> sorry, Tari. I love you too. <laughs> uh, in any case, when I started researching the story of Chipotle, it took me off on a lot of, um, you know, internet bunny trails. So I decided that we should do this episode like a bunch of mini bizographies all rolled into one tortilla. Kind of like a burrito within a burrito. Or like a taco in a taco, like the double-decker taco from Taco Bell. You know that one that's got like the, the soft taco on the outside with the hard taco on the inside? Uh, that yeah. thing is delicious. <laughs> and yes, that is exactly um, what I mean. And it's totally apropos because one of the mini taco stories in our story is actually about Taco Bell. Really? Yeah. You know, I have to say, though, that we're going to talk about Taco Bell in our Chipotle story. Kind of makes me want to know, like, the history of Mexican food in America. Uh, totally fair. That will be mini taco number two oh. in our double-decker, now triple-decker, possibly just a bunch of tacos rolled up in a burrito. I like this. Episode. I'm getting hungry. Could also be a seven-layer dip. Oh. One of, one of the best things about Mexican food is that it's really just like you take the same, I don't know how many ingredients, and you just... <laughs> like configure them differently and it's magic just, that is so true so right? there's a lot a lot of a lot of food here but i think we probably need to get going right okay we should probably start that is a fair yeah. point uh, okay so let's start our story with sort of the inspirational part uh, the founder of Chipotle and how the whole thing came to be. So the founder was a guy named Steve Ells. He was born in Indianapolis in 1965, but he grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and he went to high school there, and he actually stayed there for college. He graduated from University of Colorado Boulder with a degree that had absolutely nothing to do with business or food. And that was? Art history. Really? Yeah. Okay. So uh, moms and dads, if your kids are going to school for art history, don't panic. They could still be the next Steve Ells, who, by the way, in modern times is worth, I believe, $200 million. So, it worked out. Yeah. Um, this guy, Steve Ells, was a guy who was not exceptional. He was just a regular guy. In fact, his father, Bob Ells, says he was, quote, a bit of a delinquent, actually, in high school. You know, much less so in college, unquote. <laughs> That's a ringing endorsement from your parents, right? Um, he was also a guy who, like many of us, got through high school and college without knowing what he wanted to do with his life. But he'd always liked to cook, and he actually got pretty good at it in college. And apparently he threw these elaborate dinner parties in college where he served all kinds of delicious foods. But interestingly enough, I don't believe ever Mexican food. Also, by the way, he's around my age, like I'm a teensy bit younger than him, and nobody where I went to college was throwing elaborate dinner parties. 
I just want to yeah, make that. It seems a little odd for a college kid. Yeah, but you would have a lot of people. It's college kids. They want to eat. Well, that's true. <laughs> but it did, I just wish I had gone to school in Colorado right. is all I'm saying. <laughs> so in his senior year of college, a friend suggested to Steve Ells that he should go to cooking school because he couldn't really figure out what he was going to do after college. And he thought that seemed like a fun idea, though he still wasn't really thinking about it as a career. It was just sort of something to do to, I guess, put off growing up a little bit longer. So he goes to his dad um, with this idea. And Bob Bell says this, quote, I'll make a deal with you. If you work a year doing anything related to restaurant work, waiting tables is good enough. And then you come back and tell me you really love the restaurant business. I will pay to send you to a culinary college. But... I have a condition. It has to be the best culinary college in America. All right. That's a fair deal. I think so. Go like it. And then uh, you get set up. So, that's not so basically, if it wasn't for dad, none of this may have happened. Because right. dad was like, he was pretty serious. He's like, you don't just get to go mess around. Like, get down to business here and we'll talk. In any case, that's is exactly what happened. What dad proposed, Bob Ells, is exactly what Steve Ells did. He went and worked for a year in the business, and then he went off to the Culinary Institute of America in New York. He graduated there in 1990, and then he went out to San Francisco to work as a sous chef at a restaurant there that was pretty well known called Stars that, wait for it, was in part known for its open kitchen concept where diners could watch the chefs at work. Sound familiar? Hmm, bet we know where he got his inspiration from. There you go. Also, while he was living in San Francisco, um, Steve Ells fell in love with the huge foil-wrapped mission-style burritos that were popular there, but not anywhere else in the country. Before that, he'd only seen burritos like at a Mexican restaurant on a plate covered in sauce, not wrapped up in foil as street food, essentially. That's how we were all eating them at the time. Right. That's, think, the standard burrito thought. Old school. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But really, none of those things had anything to do with what Steve Ells, like, sort of wanted to do as his dream. At that point, after, you know, graduating from culinary school and working in this fancy restaurant in San Fran, he wanted to open his own fine dining restaurant. That was the dream for him. But, of course, a fine dining restaurant is an expensive undertaking and a risky undertaking also because many of them don't make it past the first year. Correct. So in 1993, instead of going straight for the fine dining restaurant, he asked his father to loan him $75,000 to open a small burrito shop in Denver near the University of Denver campus. He was around 28 at the time, and he saw a burrito shop for college kids as a low-risk investment, thinking that if he did this, he could make enough money with the concept to eventually open the fine dining restaurant that he was dreaming of. Later, in a interview in 2015 with Bloomberg, Bob Ells, uh, Steve's dad, recalled saying, quote, so you have six years of pretty expensive schooling here and it's going to be burritos and tacos. Are you serious? <laughs> I, I, I can't say that I blame him for that. I just paid for all this school and you want 75 grand for a burrito joint? Can what? You, can't you imagine like any parent in America saying that to their kid? Right, of course. It's like every dad would say that exact same thing. Ugh. But look, Bob Ells was a good dad, so he went along with the plan, insisting once again, sort of laying down the rules, that if Steve wanted the money, he first had to write a business plan. He wasn't going to give him the money on just sort of uh, an idea. So Steve Ells does the math, and he writes the business plan, and he figures out that to break even, he'll have to sell 114 burritos a day. So he opens the first store in July of 1993, and he brings in $240 that day. Okay, so in 1993, 
I'm no economic expert, but I bet you burritos weren't like $2. Even if they were 6 bucks, that's only 40 burritos. And if they were half that at 3 that's still only $80. So <clears throat> they didn't really break even, did they? No, they did not break even. That said, it didn't take long to get a break and even exceed that 114 burrito a day plan. A couple months into the restaurant, which was sort of getting word of mouth and getting a little bit better day by day, they got a review from a local paper and it was a really good review. And so sales shot up and they got to a thousand burritos a day. Wow. Yeah. A thousand burritos. That's some pretty good moolah. So did he end up paying his dad back or did you just give him one of those burritos for life kind of coupons? That would be horrible. <laughs> no, no. He actually uh, did, in fact, pay his dad back in full really within just a few months. Uh, of opening that first location. And a year and a half later, they decided, even though Steve was still at that time hoping to do the fine dining restaurant, to open a second location in Denver. And then in 1996, three years into it, the third Denver location was open. So things were going really well. Obviously, we kind of know what happened. Fast forward today, they have 2,500 locations around the world. But of course, there's way more to the story. Right. Don't we have to talk about the... Salmonella and their first, you know, big investor. I mean, where are they really now, right? Of course, we do have to talk about all of that. But I have to tell you, saying burrito over and over again has <laughs> A, made me hungry, and B, made me want to dig into the history of Mexican food in America. So let's do that right after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No one can argue with Steve L's success. He started with $75,000 that he borrowed from his dad at age 28. And now at age 53, at least according to Wikipedia, he's worth around 200 million bucks. Yeah, it's a pretty good turnaround. I would not complain about that. Me neither. But unlike a lot of our other bizography episodes, Els didn't invent something new like Vaseline or Tupperware. Uh, he didn't take advantage of new technology like Sears or Tinder. He just sort of did something others were doing better, and he had really good timing. So you're saying the ingredients had to line up perfectly for the world to embrace Chipotle. Kind of like they line up the ingredients at Chipotle when you go to get your burrito? That is Exactly right, new guy Nick. And just like the food lineup at Chipotle, the story gets messy. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, see, I told you, grown or mom jokes. <laughs> but before we get to that, I do want to understand the ingredients. So what is the history of Mexican food in America? Well, I got to assume it probably came from like the border states of Mexico, right? Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, all that, right? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that early immigration of Mexicans into America in those states in particular in the 1800s and early 1900s is where a lot of that came from. But also from the U.S. soldiers who were experiencing the food during military operations in Texas in that time period and then bringing those foods back home, uh, talking about them, maybe experimenting a little bit. All right. So we are about to officially jump into our history of Mexican food layer of the seven layer dip episode of Bizography, right? Yeah. And I think we should do that not by a timeline like we often do on this show, but instead by looking at some of the staples of Mexican food that we love in this country. Okay. All right. So when you say the staples, the classic Mexican menu items, that's like what? Tacos, nachos, burritos, fajitas, stuff like that. And don't forget margaritas. Ah, uh, uh, that is like the most important one. Hello. <laughs> and I have to add chili to the list because even though now we really think of chili as an American food, it's truly a Mexican food. Right. right. I wouldn't even think of chili as a Mexican food. It's an American staple at this point. It is. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to start with enchiladas. So enchiladas, actually, the word means in Chile, which is weird, I have to say, because it seems like we should call the dish that we call enchiladas and tortillas, no? Oh, yeah, right. In the tortilla seems like it. This is why I wish I spoke more Spanish. In any case, the enchilada was first referenced in United States in writing, at least, in 1885. And we don't really know where it came from, from an invention perspective, but it was one of the staples uh, that was part of Mexican food making its way to America. And like a lot of the Mexican food that made its way to America, it wasn't really Mexican. It was, in fact, prepared more for tourists, as noted in the Dictionary of American Food and Drink in a 1949 article that says, quote, a Mexican dish prepared more for tourista than for local consumption in reference to enchiladas. Now, let's talk tacos. Tacos are obviously delicious and hugely important. Right. 
Yes, but they have an interesting origin story. Jeffrey Pilcher, who's a professor of history at the University of Minnesota, believes that tacos became a thing in the 18th century in the silver mines in Mexico. In the mines, the word taco referred to these little, like, dynamite sticks, little charges that they would use to evacuate the ore from the mine. So they were like these little pieces of paper that they would wrap around gunpowder and stick into the holes that they had carved in the rock face, and then they would blow up. And so the earliest tacos, you're thinking, like, what does that have to do with the taco? Well, the earliest tacos weren't like the U-shape that we think of today. They were more like taquitos rolled up. Pilcher says, this is a quote from him, quote, when you think about it, a chicken taquito with a good hot sauce is really a lot like a stick of dynamite, unquote. (laughs) You know, he's not wrong. Now that you mention it. Right? He's not wrong. He also notes that one of the earliest written references to the taco is in the late 1800s, and one of the first types of tacos described back then is called tacos de minero, miners' tacos. Mm. So that is the most likely origin of the taco. And as Mexican food started to become popular in Southern California around the 1920s, the first famous tacos were available, and they were, in fact, actually what we now think of as taquitos. It does make sense. You're working in the mine. You need something you can grab and go with real fast. That right. totally makes sense. There you go. Um, all right. We have to talk chili, as I mentioned. Right? Even though we don't think of it as Mexican, it really is. Chili originates from northern Mexico and Texas. Uh, And in fact, it was in Texas in the 1930s that chile con carne and tamales started to become popular with the locals. It was not marketed with the word chili until much later when it was canned and sort of dispensed to the larger American masses. Okay, so what we now know as chili is technically chile con carne. Right. Okay. But of course, when Americans read C-H-I-L-E. We think of the pepper. Or they go chile. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Right. <laughs> if you wanted to pronounce chili, especially back then in the 1930s, you spell it the way Americans right. will pronounce it properly. There you go. Interestingly enough, other than a lot of the other Mexican food origin stories, chili was originally popularized by women. Most of them were Tejanas uh, or Mexicans in the area in Texas, who in particular became known in San Antonio as the Chili Queens. Did I did I stun you? Yeah, the Chili Queens? Yeah, so in the late 19th century, San Antonio was a booming railroad town. And apparently it became famous for its women-run open-air food stalls that served food like tamales and chili con carne, uh, according to a, a, a cookbook called the Tex-Mex Cookbook. The women who were selling the chili were portrayed as, quote, sharp-witted and alluring. Yes. In other words, they were sexy Uh, and they kind of spoke, you know, their minds (laughs) as women do. (laughs) So they were strong and attractive, kind of like the chili dish. Yes. And apparently I think they were single also, which was part of the allure. Uh, And men went to sort of see these beautiful women and and they they went to go meet the ladies and just happened to eat some chili in the process. (laughs) So the chili queens and their fame helped propel... Chile con carne out of Texas and into the Midwest and beyond. Hmm. So that is how Chile got its start. Interesting. Okay. Nachos. Ooh. Everybody loves a good plate of nachos, right? I remember the first time I had nachos. Really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was it was in the ni- early 1980s, could be the late 70s, but I want to say it was the early 80s. Growing up, we got like our first TGI Fridays. Oh. <gasps> 
And they yeah. did the nachos where like each chip was separate and right? had like a tiny little bit of beans and then cheese on top and then a single slice of jalapeno in the middle of it. <laughs> and I remember thinking like this was, I had just found Nirvana. Like this was, this was everything. Salty, cheesy goodness. Right. Nachos do that. They hit the spot. Pretty much all the time. Yeah. Nachos are amazing. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of debate about how nachos really began and who created them. But um, there's a story that I found about um, the so-called real inventor of nachos, a guy named Ignacio Anaya. And I don't know if this is really a true story, but it it's a legit article on HuffPost.com. And um, anyway, it says that during World War II, wives of American military officers who lived Um, in Eagle Pass, Texas, would go over the Rio Grande River to the nearby Mexican town of Piedras Negras. And on one of these excursions, they went to this uh, place called the Victory Club, which was a popular restaurant. They just wanted a little bite to eat. And the maitre d' was, you know, glad to have the business, but unfortunately had a bit of an issue that day because he couldn't find the cook. And so he didn't want to turn away these women because, you know, he wanted the money. So instead, he sort of put on the chef's hat himself and looked around the kitchen and essentially just threw together what he had, which turned out to essentially be um, nachos. It was what they called uh, neat canapes of tortilla chips, cheese and jalapeno peppers. Sounds very fancy. Yes, and kind of like the ones that TGI Fridays made, where it was each one was a neat, it wasn't a pile of nachos like we know now. It was like individual little, I'm air quoting every time I say canapes, (laughs) but like of a chip with cheese on it and a little bit of beans and a jalapeno. So he made it look pretty for the women. Right. Wow. I See, I always imagine nachos as like a mess on a plate. Right. But old school, it wasn't. Much nicer. And interestingly, even though it's such an American food, was actually invented across the border in Mexico for Americans, but in Mexico. Had the name come about? Well, Ignacio was often called Nacho for Ah. short, and the dish was named after him. Ah. (laughs) Funny, uh, interesting fact about New Guy Nick. That was actually my name in Spanish class in high school. Nacho. Nacho. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) I love it. Um, Later on, of course, nachos, uh, you know, made their way into the U.S. and didn't really gain popularity until maybe 20 years later. And that credit goes to a guy named Frank Liberto, who began to sell them as stadium food at Arlington Stadium, home of the Texas Rangers. And he made a tweak. Real cheese didn't have a great shelf life. So he devised basically a fast food version of cheese and put it on there and... There you have it. The now classic cheese sauce. Right. And these stadium nachos essentially were born. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Let's have a cocktail. Oh, yes. My favorite part. Time to talk margaritas. Yay. Margaritas were first mixed in bars along the California-Mexico border in the 1940s and eventually became a standard beverage in Mexican-American restaurants. The frozen margarita, of course, blended with ice, became popular in the 1950s, along with sort of the other tropical drinks of the time made with rum and some made with tequila. All the little stuff you put a little umbrella in. Exactly. By the 1970s, the margarita had surpassed the martini as the most popular American cocktail. All right, I'm not going to say I saved the best Mexican food for last. I will say I saved the most Chipotle-ish food for last (laughs) uh, with the burrito. 
According to Vox, the burrito was one of the last Mexican foods to actually catch on in the United States. So we don't know exactly who invented the very first burrito or why, but we do know that the name is a diminutive of burro or donkey. And there are a couple of different theories about how the name burrito came about. So if you had to guess, knowing that burro is donkey, what would you say? uh, uh, Maybe as like an easy way to put stuff together to feed your donkey? Fair. I originally, when I started reading this, thought they were going with donkey meat. Oh, And I was concerned. (laughs) But neither of those things is actually true. The main theory that people sort of accept as probably the theory is that people from Sonora, which is a northwestern Mexican state, invented the burrito because it was easy to travel with. The name burrito may have come about from its role as a sidekick to the donkey. So you're getting ready for a trip. You, you know. Load up your stuff and your burritos on the burrow. Yes, load up the burrow and get the burritos. (laughs) That's awesome. So there you go. Gustavo Ariano is the author of Taco USA, and he believes that this Sonora theory is the credible one. And he says it's because Sonora is the wheat-growing region in Mexico, and a lot of the Spanish settlers stuck with the wheat to make their tortillas, in other words, making flour tortillas, which held together way better than corn tortillas and essentially made the burrito possible. Because before that, it was corn tortillas. And if you've ever had a soft corn tortilla, they don't hold together the way the flour ones do. Absolutely right. You try to roll them up and they kind of break apart and splinter and stuff. Exactly. So for a burrito to really be what it is, it kind of has to be in a flour tortilla. And um, so that combination of all of those things happening... And the travel worthiness is probably how. It is true. A burrito is a very good on-the-go food. It is. <laughs> the word burrito was first seen in print in the United States in 1934, but burritos didn't actually get popular in the United States till much later. They caught on in Southern California in the 1950s and started to become popular nationwide thanks to a guy named Dwayne R. Roberts, who invented the frozen burrito in 1956. Ugh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Frozen burrito. He was the guy who froze stuff. He Um, had uh, sort of already had a lot of success, wait for it, selling frozen burger patties to McDonald's. Oh, frozen. Yeah. Well, let's go a little bit more fun than frozen. Let me throw a fun fact at you real fast. Okay. So a burrito. You know what happens when you take a burrito and you deep fry it? You make it extra delicious. That too. And you now call it a chimichanga. That apparently for the first time happened in the 1950s at a restaurant called El Charo Cafe in Tucson, Arizona, which, mind you, was established in 1922. So it's been around for almost 100 years. It's the nation's oldest Mexican restaurant in continuous operation by the same family. Right? That's cool. Crazy. So would they still exist today? Yeah, they're still around today. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? All right. So getting back to sort of the food timeline of Mexican food, by the 1950s, traditional corn tortillas and flour tortillas became a pretty significant component in everyday American meals, started to be available and used all over the country. Uh, In the 50s and 60s, companies tapped into the growing Latino market by mass producing Mexican taco shells, tortilla chips, frozen burritos, and these all became staples in grocery chains and convenience stores, probably more in certain parts of the country and others, but kind of all over the place. 
1970, an entrepreneur in Chicago by the name of Art Velasquez founded Azteca Foods, which you've probably seen that brand. They sold, of course, Mexican and Central American foods in supermarkets. And they were uh, one of the early um, users of preservatives, putting preservatives into the flour and corn tortillas to make them last longer. All the stuff we sort of, you know, shy away from now, but was very popular at the time uh, to get foods to travel. In 1985, Tostitos became Frito-Lay's fifth largest brand. In 1992, when something else happened, Nick Bean. I was born. That's right. (laughs) That very year, in fact, Salsa outsold ketchup. Wow. Salsa more popular than ketchup. Yep. And by 2010, tortillas began outselling hot dog buns. That's incredible. We as Americans love Mexican food more than traditional American hot dogs. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And that essentially gets us to today. But while Chipotle can take a lot of credit for spreading the mission-style burrito nationwide, it was actually two other iconic companies that paved the way by bringing tacos and chili to the American masses. Ooh, are we about to get into the next layer of our double, triple taco that we got going on? Oh, yeah. We're going to do two essentially mini bizography tacos next. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If it wasn't for a couple of savvy businessmen who saw an opportunity, Steve L.'s creation of Chipotle might never have happened. One of those two guys was J.C. Hormel. 
Hormel was born in Austin, Minnesota back in 1892. And the year before he was born, his dad, George Hormel, who had a long career in the meat industry, founded his own company. He called it George A. Hormel and Company. And he focused on the packaging and selling of ham, sausage, and other pork, chicken, beef, lamb, etc., to consumers. Jay went to college, but left college in 1914 to start working for his dad's business. And he continued to work there throughout most of his life, although he did have a brief interruption to serve in the military during World War I. At the same time in history that Jay was coming of age and coming into the company, canning was becoming more and more popular as a way to um, distribute mass-produced foods and get them shipped all over the country. So he starts there in 1914. And then in 1924, the company Hormel becomes the first to ever can ham. And they started with that to move their products way beyond Minnesota. In 1929, Jay Hormel becomes the president of the Hormel company and is looking for ways to grow the business. By this point, Chile con carne is already being canned by several companies and it's getting out there, but it's not nationally popular yet. And Jay sees some potential there. So in 1935, Jay Hormel begins canning Hormel's Chile con carne and shipping it across the Midwest taking on the Texas and Chicago companies that were already dominating the trade. So he wasn't the first to can Chile con carne, but he was a marketing guy. And he organized a variety of different ways to promote the product, including a traveling 20-piece Mexican song and dance troupe called the Hormel Chili Beaners. (laughs) What? Yes, They sung and danced their way to product success, uh, going across the country, singing and dancing about the chili and giving away samples. The competitors were not up to the challenge, and they essentially fell away while Hormel continued to can the stuff to the tune of millions of dollars per year. And of course, it's still available today. The other thing it did, aside from just getting it out there, was sort of whet the American appetite for a whole new flavor profile and kind of get them ready for more Mexican food. Right. I mean, chili got so pop so popular at one point that here's a little interesting bit. The chili dog, right, was first made in Altoona, Pennsylvania in 1918, right? So before this happened, but of course, just like anything else, it starts to spread little by little through mostly, interestingly, Greek families. That's an interesting tidbit for another show. But eventually it finds its way, the chili dog finds its way to none other than New York, where there's a bunch of hot dog stands. About the time that happens is when Hormel's chili is everywhere. Boom. Chili dog in New York became a huge thing. Also, interestingly, in LA, on the other side of the country, the chili burger was gaining popularity about the same time. So they were starting to pick up and then, oh, everyone can have chili and they exploded. So like Chili at the time was like cheese today. Like now we're in this mode where like if you put cheese on anything, it's good. And right. back then it was like you put chili on Absolutely. anything and it's you know good. What? It's, it's speaking of where this is the Chipotle episode, remember the big thing for a while was guac? That was chili. Yeah. It was chili back then and Hormel took advantage of it. And here's another interesting fact about Jay Hormel. His grandson, whose name is Smokey Hormel. No, really. That's actually his name. Huh is not involved in the family business. He's not. Instead, he's a recording artist. (laughs) He plays guitar, and he's done stuff with Adele, Beck, Johnny Cash, the Dixie Chicks, Rufus Wainwright, 
even Justin Timberlake. He has been, apparently, with all the big names as a recording artist. That is pretty wild. Now, do you think when he walks in the room, they all ask him for, like, a can of Spam? <laughs> One would hope not, right? Maybe he's maybe that's why he got into music, right? He's trying to get away from the whole canned meats industry. But you would have to think he's got at least to have one or two in the trunk, right? It's your name, man. I mean, come on. You gotta think. <laughs> so that brings us to the other entrepreneur and even more iconic brand that was instrumental in getting Americans all across the country to embrace Mexican food. His name was Glenn Bell. And the company, of course, is Taco Bell. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Did you say Taco Bell? That's uh, that's like a millennial calling sign. It's like a Pavlovian thing, right? Because that's, that's what millennials eat. It's Taco Bell. But I didn't know it was actually named after the founder. Did you? No. I thought it was just a bell, like in a bell tower or like a dinner bell, maybe. Right, right. We think of the Alamo and the big church tower, but the bell on the top. That's absolutely nuts. So, all right. So, Glenn Bell obviously didn't invent the taco. We already talked about that. So, how does he come into the story here? Right. He did not invent the taco. As we already mentioned, tacos made their way to Southern California in the early, say, 1910s and 1920s, right around the time Glenn Bell was born. He was born in Linwood, California in 1923. He grew up in that area, graduated from San Bernardino High School in 1941, and served in the Marines in World War II. After the Marines, he starts his first hot dog stand called Bell's Drive-In. That was also in San Bernardino, and now it's 1948. In 1952, he sells the hot dog stand and builds a new location, a new restaurant, selling this time hot dogs and hamburgers. And from there, he watches across the street a long line of customers at a Mexican restaurant called Mitla Cafe. This is across the street from him, and he's just frustrated because he's seeing everybody line up over there. Um, that restaurant became famous among the local residents for its hard-shelled tacos, which was sort of a new way of doing the taco. So Bell tries to reverse engineer the recipe, and eventually the owners let him in and let him see how the tacos are made. So he takes what he learns, and he opens a new stand under the name of Taco Tia in 1951 and starts selling tacos. Side note, in Glenn Bell's autobiography, he claims to have invented the hard taco shell. But in the Google world we now live in, this is easily disproved. But the ability to preserve and transport the hard taco shell was instrumental for Glenn Bell and for tacos going nationwide and becoming uh, an American favorite. Bell continued to grow his businesses, opening three tacotillas in the San Bernardino area in the mid-1950s, uh, eventually selling those and then opening four El Tacos with a partner in the Long Beach area. Then by 1962, he decides to go solo and he opens his first Taco Bell. And though he didn't invent the hard taco shell, what he did do was figure out how to transport the taco shells without them breaking all over the place and bring the idea of franchising to the world of Mexican food. So Taco Bell, with their fast food version of Mexican, now becomes available to the masses. So Glenn Bell basically took Mexican food and, let's be fair, McDonald's did, right? Yeah, isn't it interesting how McDonald's is working its way into this episode? First, we had the guy who froze the burrito and... Froze the patties. Froze the McDonald's right. patties. Then we have sort of a mcdonalds 
of Mexican food. Say McDonald'sizing three times fast. <laughs> You're right. It's all tying together, right? But he, he made a mass-produced cheap version of Mexican food that made it more accessible to Americans. And that kind of Americanized Mexican food so much that it is part of our culture now, right? Okay, so I just have to say, this reminds me of Trevor Noah's stand-up on Netflix, where he talks about how his first roommate in America is shocked that he has never had a taco. Let me play it for you. Nothing says America like tacos. Is it really? Nothing says America like Mexican food? I've, I've had the privilege of traveling everywhere in this beautiful country. I've been to places like Erie, Pennsylvania, El Paso, Texas, Honolulu, Hawaii, you know. I've been everywhere, and one thing I've learned across the board in America is that Americans love tacos. I mean, he's kind of right. Spot on. And tacos have definitely gotten fancier over the years. It's like it's like Glenn Bell made them really fast foodie and then, you know, culinary folk made them fancy again. So I think now that we know all of that history, we should probably get back to Chipotle. Up next, we'll talk about how Chipotle grew, what they got right, what they got wrong, and whether or not they will retain iconic status or fade into just a brand that was. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. 
Getting back to Chipotle, the namesake of our episode, um, is important because while they are iconic and headlining this episode, the question really remains, how did they get there and will they retain that status? So when we were talking about Chipotle at the very beginning of the episode, we took a turn before they really began to grow. In fact, we left their story just after the third Denver location was opened in 1996. So that was barely into it. So in 1996, while Steve Ells still kind of wants to do a fine dining thing and is feeling guilty every time he opens a new Chipotle, he also realizes the potential that Chipotle has. And so he also knows if he's going to continue to grow Chipotle, he needs more cash. So he goes back to the bank of M&D, known as mom and dad, and they come through. Ells' parents, once again, uh, bring money to the table. This time they helped him raise $1.3 million in investment money from a handful of their wealthy friends. With that, Ells creates a board of directors and a new business plan and raises an additional $1.8 million for the company and continues to grow and add locations. In 1998, McDonald's gets interested. Yeah. And they make an initial minority investment of $50 million. Now, I say minority investment because that means that's how much the company is now already worth. That $50 million is a minority investment. Wow. Right. So by 1998, the company is doing amazingly well. And McDonald's, over the next couple of years, grows to be their largest investor, um, continuing to invest and allowing them to expand from 16 stores um, in 2001 to 500 stores by 2005. That is incredible growth. It is phenomenal growth. But McDonald's wanted to do things the McDonald's way. So they attempted over the years to get Chipotle to add drive through windows. Can you imagine? Yeah. Some part of me says that'd be cool, but then again, weird. Mm, uh, yeah. Yeah. And also they wanted uh, Chipotle to do breakfast, but Els resisted all of that. He wanted to keep um, things how they were. Uh, by 2006, Chipotle is ready for their first public offering. They're ready to go public on the stock market. That same year, McDonald's decides to fully divest itself from Chipotle altogether I don't think it really had anything to do with the personality clash that McDonald's wanted all these new things and, you know, Chipotle slash Steve Ells didn't, but more because McDonald's was sort of taking a look at all of their investments and just deciding that they wanted to focus on McDonald's and get rid of all of the non-core, non-McDonald's parts of their business. But it's important to note that over time, McDonald's invested something like $360 million into Chipotle. Without that, I mean, maybe there would have been another investor, but without McDonald's being a part of the story, they would never have gotten where they are. The other important point, and you noticed this too when you were uh, <laughs> looking at this, Nick, is that for the $360 million McDonald's invested, they walked away with a cool $1.5 bill. That is a very good investment. Yeah, in just wow. a couple of years. Yeah, because they divest in 06 and they, it wasn't even 10 years from 98. That's eight-year return. That's pretty incredible. Pretty darn good. <laughs> so, you know, essentially Chipotle continues to grow on their own once they are separated from McDonald's and now public. Um, by 2008, they opened their first uh, store outside of the continental U.S., um, being in Canada. That's a big Toronto. move for most places. Going, going global. Right. Yeah. Uh, in 2011, Consumer Reports ranks Chipotle as the best Mexican fast food chain. At this point, they are serving approximately 750,000 customers a day. Wow. Yeah. 
Remember that first day of sales where they sold $240 worth of burritos? I will say, I thought it was incredible they got up to about 1,000 burritos a day at the store, but 750,000 people? Yeah. Wow. Uh, By 2014, Chipotle has now 17 locations outside the U.S., uh, most of those in Canada, but also in some other countries. By 2015, they have 2,000 locations overall and more than 45,000 employees and a net income of almost 500 mil. Well, I will say 2015 is right about the time. You're right. When like the Chipotle craze was going on, everybody was at Chipotle and they had the Chipotle cups and it was like it was it was kicking. Right. It was top notch. Everybody had to go to Chipotle for lunch. Yes. And in 2015, with 2000 locations and 45000 employees and 500 million in net revenue, all seemed great. Rabid fans are there. It's all happening. And then the poop hit the fan. Maybe not literally for everyone, but kind of literally for some because the food poisoning thing started to happen. And it wasn't just one disease. It was like E. coli and neurovirus. And it was just one thing after another, one store after the other. And it happened over the course of not you know a month or a year, but multiple years. Right. And that's the craziest thing is that makes you know it's not it's it's a company issue, right? Is because it happened in this part of the country and then the other part of the country. It wasn't all concentrated. It was company wide. It was sort of all over the place and it was really random and they kept thinking it was solved and then it wasn't solved mm-hmm. and a new outbreak would happen in a new city. And so I think we have to almost separate the way um, Chipotle appeared to grow and what they appeared to stand for versus their actual behavior who they really were at the core. And I think the problem is they focused on things like food with integrity. That started all the way back in 1999 when they were looking to um, source their pork better, probably because they wanted a better taste, you know, or better consistency. But ultimately they found that they, you know, could buy product from local ranches in particular areas and they could kind of go for this, you know, food with integrity theme, which was starting to, you know, become popular with restaurant goers in general, not just Chipotle. Absolutely, right? You didn't want the GMO stuff and you wanted naturally sustainable and all yes, of that, right? Right. As the millennials essentially were starting to come <laughs> of did. age. We did. Right? And that's the kind of stuff millennials were wanting. Absolutely. And so, and that was their target market. And so they got on board with that. And, you know, it was probably less of a feature during the McDonald's years. It was still there, but they weren't really you know, pushing it as hard as they had. But once McDonald's was out of the picture again in 2006, they get focused on that again. And they start advertising heavily about, and when I say heavily, Chipotle never really advertised super heavily, but billboards and, and you know, uh, press releases and, you know, interviews with Steve Ells about this kind of of thing, this part of their business. Right, and especially when you walked into a Chipotle, you could tell that was kind of something they were pushing for, was that yeah. sustainability model. And L's at the time, like in the mid to, you know, mid, how do you say that? Mid-aughts, I guess, right? Yeah. Was doing a lot of interviews um, about all of that. Mm. Like you'd see him, you know, with his boots on out on the farm, <laughs> talking to the farmer about whatever, the tomatoes or the pork or whatever. And uh, they added things like uh, biodegradable containers, Et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, this really became their theme through 2011. They added those gold wrappers. Remember that? Yes. That was part of their 18-year anniversary. It's hard to believe they've been around as long as they have, but 2011 was 18 years. They added the gold foil, again, to promote food with integrity. 
Um, in 2011, I'm jumping around a little bit, but they um, launched a foundation. It's called the Chipotle Cultivate Foundation, and that supports and promotes good land stewardship, good animal husbandry practices, food literacy, better nutrition. So this is all the stuff that they're sort of marketing out to the world. And, you know, one of my pet peeves for companies in general is when they market their goodness instead of truly worrying about being good. Right. Sometimes look at you, us. You, look at it. Look at me. Yeah. Sometimes you have to let the goodness speak for itself. And that's not to say it shouldn't be on the menus and all of that, but they really um, went out of their way to promote the goodness of what they were doing as their differentiator. We're better than any other burrito place because we do this. Right. Right. That was their primary marketing scheme. Altogether. Yeah. And it's funny because you and I both talked about the fact that when the craze of Chipotle was happening, kind of in maybe 2013, 2011, 2012, 2013 was like the heyday, that we were not into it, you and I, and because we were sort of latecomers to yeah. the to the whole thing. And, you know, what, like I said, when I walked into a Chipotle, the stores were kind of dirty, the chairs were uncomfortable, the selection wasn't really exactly what I liked, the people you know that worked there weren't very nice. I didn't really get it. But I think what I saw in the store was what was actually happening. Mm. In other words, yes, they sourced their food responsibly. And yes, they had biodegradable containers. But they didn't spend the time or money to train their staff um, or to provide support and services, it seems like, for their franchisees. So there was no push for their franchisees to keep the stores clean or the machinery operating in the way that it should. And that is what allowed for the 2015, you know, outbreak of disease. And again, norovirus being the first one. But over the years of uh, these continual disease outbreaks, I think something like 700 people got sick. Yeah. yeah. Overall, that's that's bad. Yeah. And there were also some other stories that were happening in and around, you know, 2015, 2016, in that whole era where there was a, a drug charge with against the chief marketing uh, officer of the company, a guy named Mark Crumpacker, who, who got caught up in a cocaine ring. And so that was sort of in some more bad press for the company. There was also some discussion about Steve L's salary being too high and him being too greedy, given everything else that was going on. And none of this was good press for Chipotle. So their market value goes down a little bit. Their stock goes down a little bit. The you know, rabid fandom sort of dissipates to some extent. And, you know, they, you know, they're struggling a little bit. Like, they're not on the way to doomsday, but they're definitely not the shining star that they were prior to all of that happening. Yeah, they definitely took big profit hits, for sure, with all of that stuff that was going on. The people just went, eh, I don't need Chipotle like that anymore. Exactly. And so I think, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, Steve Ells sort of knew that he had done all that he was going to be able to do for the company. And it was time for him to step down from his role of CEO. So he does that in 2017. And they announce uh, the new CEO uh, coming in shortly after that, who comes from none other than Taco Bell. Oh, go figure. Bringing our episode full circle. <laughs> Brian Nickel had formerly been CEO of Taco Bell, and in March of 2018, he becomes CEO of Chipotle. And in fact, the stock goes way up on the news, uh, and it looks like things are going to be 
better. So that kind of brings us up to today. Look, there are people who don't like the idea of Brian Nickel running Chipotle because they don't like the idea of Taco Bell and Chipotle sort of being the same. But the question really now is, will Chipotle regain some of its luster? Will the rabid fans ever come back? Do they get to keep or even really officially earn an icon status? Or are they just a flash in the pan and not a true icon? And if I have to make a prediction, which I guess I kind of do because I set myself up (laughs) to make one. It is bizography. It is. I would say I think they're more of a flash in the pan, um, though a very well-known one. Unless they decide under Brian Nickel to really start innovating, they're just going to die. Look at all the other companies, um, some that we've talked about on bizography and some that we haven't, that stopped innovating and because of that fell away. Sears, um, you know, the most famous probably of all, we didn't do an episode on, but Blockbuster. And so we've seen that across a lot of of companies. At first, I think it was great that Steve Ells stuck to the mission of keeping the food choices limited and making the quality really good. But after a while, everybody can copy that. So unless you're on the forefront and innovating, you don't survive. He almost lost sight, right? We said at the start of the episode that he didn't really make something new or groundbreaking like some of the other things we've, he just took what was already being done and did it better. Well, the problem is people came behind him and did what he was doing better than him. Right, right. And of course, I think the other really important point um, is that this is not a guy who was um, designed for this, if that makes sense. I mean, he was just a guy who found the right food at the right time and turned it into an amazing business. But it's not like he had the head for that necessarily. I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't know him, obviously, and I don't really know what's in his brain. But it does seem like there's some hope now with Brian Nickel in charge. We'll see what happens. My prediction is they just become maybe a lasting brand for a period of time, but one of many. Yeah. They'll just fall amongst the rest, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think that it is noteworthy in pointing out that here in 2019, um, there are a few Mexican chains that are doing extremely well. And if you just look at the number of locations they have as an indicator, the biggest one is Taco Bell. With over 6,000 stores across the globe, Chipotle, however, is in second place with close to 2,500 stores globally, followed by Qdoba, which has about 750 stores, and then Moe's, my favorite, that has also in the mid-700s, and then Del Taco with 580 stores. So there's a lot of uh, folks on their tail, um, but Taco Bell might actually have to be the icon of this story as we wrap it up. Right. I think so. They are the ones that kind of spread it everywhere, right? They're the ones that you just instantly remember. Chipotle, my kids aren't going to know about it. Right. So Taco Bell might not be as, I'll air quote this, classy as Chipotle, (laughs) but they're still going strong and everybody knows Taco Bell. That's our show for today. See you next time. Bizography is produced by the iHeart Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dana Barrett. My co-host is Nick Bean. Our producer is Tari Harrison. And our executive producer is Jonathan Strickland. Have questions? Want to give us feedback? Or have a company you'd like us to cover? Email us at info at bizography.show or contact us on social. I'm at the Dana Barrett on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just search for me on LinkedIn. Thanks for your support. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 